Welcome to the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. And if you want to learn more about our church, look us up on Facebook or our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. There's a game that I've played with many different church youth groups called Two Truths and a Lie. The game is simple and goes like this. Each person tells two truths about themselves and one lie, and everyone else in the room tries to guess which of the three statements is a lie. Now, while I don't condone or encourage lying, this game is an interesting practice to see how well you know people and a chance to get to know them better. When an unknown truth comes out, you can ask the person to tell the story behind it. So, here are my two truths and a lie. I have eaten and enjoyed fried shark sandwiches. I have hiked in a pasture with a buffalo known for goring pickup trucks. And my favorite color of Labrador is chocolate. If you have a guess as to which of these is the lie, you can post it below in the Facebook post for this podcast. Today I want to look at two truths from the Bible. That Jesus has great compassion for each of us. And secondly, that he wants to restore us from brokenness of this world into new life. Now, as soon as you are told these truths, you will be tempted to believe a lie. The enemy whispers in your ear, Jesus doesn't really have restoration for you. It's not really real restoration. It's not complete. It doesn't cover over all of your faults and all of your sin. It doesn't really make you feel like you are new. The lie will be whispered, it will be told, and you have to decide, is it truth or is it a lie? And it is a lie. Whether you are facing grief from this pandemic or something else in your life, Jesus has compassion and restoration for you. Now I want to get to our text today. It's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. It's this beautiful little story of a life restored, of a family restored, of Jesus having compassion, of restoring a life, and bringing hope into this village called Nain. Let's go to verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd came from the town and was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up, and he touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Jesus is traveling with his disciples when they come upon the town of Nain, and they encounter headlong a scene of intense grief. Now, this is the only time in the Bible where the town of Nain is mentioned, and it is thought to be the modern city of Nain, N-E-I-N, which is about six miles southeast of Nazareth and a day's journey from Capernaum. The the scene is a scene of grief, and it's a funeral. The Jewish people, they practice uh, funeral burials 
on the same day as a person would die. And emotion was an incredibly important part of these funerals. You could even hire professional grievers for the funeral procession. So this is uh, the occasion that Jesus walks into, and it's a particularly sorrowful one. It is the funeral of a young man. We know nothing of his age other than his time was too soon. His mother, we are told, is a widow, and this compounds the grief. The son was certainly... Uh, her support. And so this funeral is a loss of a part of her losing her son. It is also the loss, the loss of her last lifeline for help. And it's the end of a family line. And as such, the whole town has turned out to share in the widow's grief. It is this situation that Jesus walks into. And now we come to the first truth that we must understand. Jesus has tremendous compassion for each of us, regardless of our station in life, regardless of our past, and regardless of what causes us grief. The compassion of Christ, of Jesus, is shown in two ways in the story. First, we are told that his heart went out to her, out to the widow. Those words, these words are just loaded with meaning. Jesus understands the grief of the moment in more ways than we realize. He understood keenly what lies ahead for this lonely widow in the world. She would have even less resources to support herself. He saw the death of this young man. In this death, he saw the brokenness of sin and what it brought into the world. This world Jesus created was not to be like this, and he sees the tragedy of this brokenness in this young man's death. He sees and knows this pain. And I believe that Jesus saw a snapshot of the future. Soon Jesus will lay down his life upon the cross, and his mother will grieve his loss as a widow. She will bury him, not with the solidarity and support of Nazareth, but with a small group who has to hurriedly bury Jesus in shame because he was executed as a criminal. The authorities want him gone. They don't want anything to do with him, and the crowd will have turned their back on him, and the disciples will be running in fear. So at the city gate of Nain, Jesus saw a picture of himself, and he knew the pain that this widow was feeling. He was moved in his heart, and he had compassion. Now the second clue of Jesus' compassion is this, that he reached out and he touched the bier. The bier, B-I-E-R, was a simple wooden plank that the body would be laid upon. Jesus reached out and he touched that plank, and this was a powerful moment. You must understand that by touching the plank, Jesus was making himself ceremonially unclean. Numbers 19.11 tells us this, whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. This touch made him ceremonially unclean, but where human need was in question, Jesus never worried about ceremonial trifles. The touch of the funeral plank showed his willingness to identify with the situation and to not back away from it. I would suggest that there is simple power in Jesus in that moment of him touching the burial plank. It was a holy moment. Those carrying the plank, they stopped, but they did not try to stop Jesus or to question him. The mother doesn't cry out at Jesus in her grief. Jesus enters the grief of this funeral and he joins them with this touch. Sometimes the most effective ministry occurs in a small act of compassion, not in an attempt to solve pain, 
although Jesus clearly had the power and the thought in his mind to solve this mother's pain, but the touch alone does much to bring relief. In my time as a pastor, I've been called to many difficult situations, and it is tempting in those moments when I'm called to the home of a family who has lost a loved one, when I'm called to the home of a family who is uh, at, at in battling against each other, it is tempting in that moment to try to fix things, to offer a solution, to try to talk away someone's sorrow, but I have found it is often more important to sit alongside the hurting people, the hurting person, and just to listen and to pray. If you are uncertain of how to help a hurting soul, be willing to enter their world and to listen and pray. You don't have to fix it. The gift of compassion is powerful. It disarms the grieving and it speaks an important promise to the heart. They are not alone. And that is what Jesus did with this woman in her grief. And that's what he does to us in our grief, in our struggle, in our pain. He says we're not alone. Psalm 34:18 tells us the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. So Jesus reaches out. He reaches out to us with compassion and that he does what only he can do, which is to offer true restoration. And that's the second truth of this passage. First one is that Jesus has compassion for each of us, whatever our hurts are in life. But the second truth is that Jesus has the authority, the real genuine authority to give us true restoration from our hurts, from our griefs, from our pain, from our struggle. He can give restoration and new life from that. Jesus speaks to the young man and he raises him from the dead. There is a subtle switch in how Jesus is named in this story. In verse 11, it begins with just the name Jesus. Jesus was wandering down with his disciples in a crowd. That's how he is, he is labeled and described. But then in verse 13, it no longer says Jesus. It says the Lord. And this is a very intentional switch. It's not just Jesus, not just the teacher, not just the miracle worker, but the Lord, the master, the one with authority over life and death. Leon Morris writes this. This title, the Lord, fits the scene as Jesus will show himself to be the Lord over death itself. This is not just water to wine or a miraculous catch of fish. This is death defeated, and Jesus commands death to be relinquished. To, he commands death to relinquish its grip on the young man, and it does. No truth is more fundamental than Jesus' authority to reverse death, and this is the ultimate restoration. As Christians, our hope is not just in feeling good now, not just in, in holiness and good behavior, but our hope is only located in Lord Jesus. He has paid the price for our sins, and he gives us new life, restored life. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 57 tell us this. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This passage is just wonderful, and it's puzzling, because death does still sting, doesn't it? And the, the loss we feel in life, whether it's death or whether it's the loss of uh, of a job or the loss of health or you know, in the pandemic we're in, there's all kinds of loss happening right now and, and there's sting here. But we're told with Christ's conquer, with his conquest over death, that it truly loses its sting. 
And I would say this when a Christian dies, it's not death they truly experience, but the shadow of death. Because they pass from this physical world that we see and touch and feel now into eternal life. Death doesn't truly touch the Christian, though we may see physical death now. It doesn't truly touch the Christian. So the young man is raised, and the town celebrates, and it gives glory to God. The widow's life is changed in an instant. It does not go back to normal. I wonder how many dinners this mother and son shared where they recounted the day that her boy died and was brought back to life by Jesus. I would love to hear the conversation in their home on the day they heard about Jesus' resurrection. The woman, or the passage uses a phrase that I think is really important. That Jesus gave him back to her. When the Lord gave you back to me, I think she probably said after that. Do we realize that true healing comes from the one who can give life back to us? This miracle is so special because it echoes back to Israel's past and it foreshadows the future of what Jesus has planned. I, I, I can't teach about this story without mentioning these other stories in Israel's history. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24, you have Elijah the prophet, and he's living under the care of a widow and her son, and the son dies, and the widow is grieved, and Elijah, he lays over the body and he prays over the son three times and prays that God would restore the life of the son, and the boy lives. In 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, you have not Elijah, but Elisha the prophet, and he's in a similar situation. There's a widow, and she has lost her son, and he also prays for the boy. He lays over the body of the boy and asks God to restore his life, and the boy lives. Both of these accounts are vivid in their detail, and they're kind of strange when you read about them. I am struck by the effort of Elijah and Elisha to seek a miracle from God. The miracle is real. Life is truly given. But the ability of Elijah and Elisha to restore is very limited. But now we have the story of Jesus coming to the city of Nain. And there's a widow and her son. And Jesus, all he has to do is, he doesn't have to lay over the body. He doesn't have to pray multiple times. All he has to do is speak a simple word. And the boy lives. Restoration happens. The echo to Israel's past is restoration is possible, but it's limited. What Jesus is showing now in the city of Nain is that restoration is on the way. He shows where the real power is, but it's not quite ready yet. Because all three of these young men must face death again. It's only after Jesus lays down his life on the cross that we can receive true restoration, restoration that lasts forever. And that's what this story is telling us about. We have, the days of the past are gone in which true restoration is elusive. And the days are gone when, when restoration is limited in time, that the, the, those who are raised must die again. But now we have access to real, genuine restoration through the power of Christ. Whoever we are, in whatever struggle we find ourselves, whether we are 
have been wronged or whether we feel our wrongs are unforgivable or irreversible, Jesus has compassion for you and he offers you true restoration. I think a lot of us have been going through a process of grieving over this pandemic. We're facing loss, the loss of our world as it once was and uncertain about what's coming next. And I'll tell you, if you're unsure of what to do, seek Jesus. He has a solution for what we face now. But I offer this warning. You must be willing to let Jesus interrupt your parade and do a new thing. In our story today, Jesus interrupted a funeral parade. His first words to the widow were, don't cry. Can you just picture that for a moment? This, the whole town has showed up to grieve the loss of this young man and Jesus shows up and he just simply says, don't cry. The widow could have yelled back at him, how dare you? Don't you see my pain? Don't you see what I have lost? But she lets him interrupt. Sometimes people can become stuck in their grief, in their sorrow, in their struggle, in their shame. And I would say with the pandemic, we still have a long road ahead of us in recovery. But be careful not to live in your grief, not to get stuck. Invite Jesus to do a new thing in your life. Let him interrupt the procession. And when you do, when you invite him in to do that new thing, be willing to praise God for what he does. When I mentioned the town of Nain to Betsy earlier this week, she kind of laughed and said, it sounds a little like Vegas. Whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, except for it's the opposite. What happens in, in Nain does not stay in Nain. The crowd celebrates, the family celebrates, and the text tells us that news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. When you praise God for what he has done, word is going to spread. I want to ask you today, no matter if you are a Christian or not, will you let Jesus do a new work in you? Will you let him reach out to you with his compassion and bring restoration for to your soul? Perhaps he needs to bring healing to an old grief, the loss of a loved one. Perhaps healing to the, from the grief of a divorce or a dream that you had, an aspiration that you had to let go of and let die. Will you invite him in to do a new thing? Martin Luther uh, has a sermon that he has written on this very same text. And he has this line that he shares that I, I think is important for us to understand. He says, this is not a sermon for the satisfied crowd, but it is delightful for the small and insignificant. This is not a sermon for the satisfied. This is not a story for the satisfied, but for those who are hurting and struggling and aren't sure of what comes next. And I would say most of the world is in this place right now. So I ask you, will you seek to find satisfaction in Christ? Robert Louis Stevenson tells of a storm that caught a vessel off of a rocky coast and threatened to drive it and its passengers to destruction. In the midst of the terror, one daring man, contrary to orders, went onto the deck and made a dangerous passage to the pilot house. And he saw the steerman at his post holding the wheel of the ship unwaveringly, and inch by inch he was turning the ship out once more to the sea. The pilot saw the watcher and he smiled.
Then the daring passenger went below and gave out a note of cheer. I have seen the face of the pilot, and he smiled, and all is well. That is what we see when we look to Christ, to Jesus, for compassion and restoration. We see his smile, and when we ask, we can know that all is well. Will you let him do a new thing in you today? Let us pray. Lord, we seek you in our need. Some of us have old griefs that weigh heavy on us. We do not want to forget or demean the past, but we need you to make us new and able to step forward in life as new creations. And Lord, I pray right now for those who are hurting. I pray today for those who are fearful. I pray that you will bring new life to tired hearts. It is in Christ alone that we can find the help we need. And so we seek his face now, Lord. Do a new thing in us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.